0: Hi, welcome to the Midtown Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check out our website and social media. And now, this week's message. I was um, so excited during the worship in both services. The first one, it just kind of washed over me because The songs we're singing go so well with what we're talking about today. And and I just, you know, having studied it all week and then getting to sing these songs, I think you'll see for yourselves in just a minute. We started a new series last week that Kevin kicked us off on, on on King David from the beginning of his story. So this is kind of week two in that. And I wanted to read to you an early psalm. That David wrote. Maybe when he was shepherding the fields, maybe he jotted this down in one of his journals and turned it into the music director later when he became king and was like, put this one to music. It's Psalm 8. This won't be where we're looking this morning, but it is something David wrote. Psalm chapter, it's beautiful. He says, "'Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth.'" and listen to all the second person pronouns here. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of me? Human beings that you care for us. It's a Great, You have made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. You made us rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under our feet, all flocks and herds, animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. And then he, then he closes the way he opens. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth, isn't that, isn't that beautiful? I mean, I've heard that psalm since I was a kid, but it just hit me different this week. Today, we're going to tell you a story you've already heard. You already know this one. You heard it as a kid. You have returned to it as an adult. We're beginning this new teaching series, and the first. Blip up on the map is David and Goliath. This famous story that you heard in children's church or Sunday school or saw on Veggie Tales. right? It's become synonymous with an underdog and a giant. And because we've looked at it so often, my fear for you is that you're gonna put your circle underline highlight material away and just kinda coast. Cause you're gonna be like, I know this one. I don't have to pay attention. But there's a new lesson in us for this today. I believe, as I studied it this week, I saw something I never saw before, and that's the fact that David's not really a hero in this story. I'm going to try to convince you of that in just a second, but that's where we're going. What we talked about last week is we met Shepherd David, Shepherd Boy David, right? The prophet comes to town, and he pulls up to Jesse's house at the Flying J Ranch of Jesse, where he's got farm hands everywhere and eight boys, and the prophet goes, Oh, Jesse, one of your boys is going to be the next king. God has removed his favor, he's removed his spirit, his anointing from Saul, he's done with him. And he's chosen one of your boys, so go round them up, get them in the living room, and we're going to go one by one with the little king detector and decide which one of the boys it is, because we don't know. And so he, does, he gets them in the room. you got to imagine being Jesse. You're like, your whole life you've been farming, right? And you're like, one of my boys is going to be king. So you get them all together in the living room, and the prophet goes one by one, and the thing doesn't go off. And it's crazy. Because the first one, we're told that the prophet is like, this guy looks like a king, right? He's big, you know, he's brawny, he's good looking. And the thing is like, no, he's like, all right, well, Maybe the battery's low. Okay, so he goes to the next one. It doesn't go off. He goes around to all of the boys, and the thing never goes off. And the prophet's like, this is good. Cr- Jesse, do you have any more boys? And you remember what Jesse says? He's like, well, I mean, sort of. <laughs> Wouldn't you hate to be sort of? <laughs> David's middle name was sort of. He's like, I got one, he's the youngest, he's out tending sheep, right? He plays a harp, he writes poetry, he watches sheep. Like, we don't really talk about, we don't really talk, he's not king material. How terrible. And this is what scripture gives us. The prophet goes, well, go get him anyway, just in case. And they go and get David, and suddenly the little thing goes off. And he's like, oh, you're going to be the next king over Israel. And we find out this important lesson. The prophet goes, I would have never considered him. Right? I looked at the firstborn, and I was like, that looks like a king. And God goes, well, that's the problem. Remember, he says in verse 7, don't consider his appearance or his height, God tells Samuel. The Lord does not look at the things people look at, Paul. um, Kevin told us last week, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I never noticed this before until Kevin said it last week, all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Bible, both Testaments, right, Old and New Testament, David is referred to as a man after God's own heart. And I never saw that first, 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, as the foreshadowing of that. But it is set up right there. It's the epithet. Before it even kicks off, this is the prologue. David is going to be known by his heart. It starts here. What we'll do this morning is track the heart of this leader from this foreshadowing verse into his battle with Goliath. Here he's anointed. He's told he's going to be king. And what I find astounding is that he just goes back to tending sheep. (laughs) Maybe he didn't understand the significance of what Samuel just did. Maybe he was unaware of what the oil meant. Maybe he did understand, but he also understood it's God's job to elevate him in the right time. Who knows, but he just goes back to tending sheep. On his road to kingship, David is going to be a willing hitchhiker with his thumb out for the ride. He knows he goes in the passenger seat. God goes in the driver's seat. And then at the end of chapter six there's a scene change. David goes back to tending sheep. The reader is transported into the room of King Saul, into the throne room of King Saul. In verse 43, we're going to pick this up as we make our way to David and Goliath. It says in verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. What we read about here in coming verses is that Saul, the king, would just fall into these bad moods, these horrible fits of depression. And his attendants are concerned about it because when the king's mad, no one's having a good day. Verse 15, his attendant said to him, see, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the bad spirit comes on you and you will feel better. And so Saul says to his attendants do you know anyone do you know anyone who might play for me anyone who maybe some music would help maybe you're right and they're like actually there's this kid named David and we see it there David is fetched. Someone goes, they send a summons for him. They bring David to part-time work in the king's service. Bad mood descends on Saul. David comes to the castle, plays a little bit. Bad mood leaves. Bad mood descends. David comes to the castle. Bad mood leaves. And as he serves the king, he begins to earn favor and trust in his sight. Something about the music alleviates the depression from the king. And David gets himself a part-time job in the palace. And then there's a scene change. Chapter 16 ends. We're moved into chapter 17. Now at some point Saul goes back on the battlefield. This is the day and age when kings don't just sit in their throne rooms and plot stuff out, right? No, they're warlords. They're heroes. They're a head and shoulders above the rest, right? Remember for Saul, he's chosen because he's tall. That's kind of it. If you know the story at all, the people go, God, we want a king. And he's like, well, you got one. I'm your king. And they're like, yeah, we want a different king. And he's like, all right, well, it's not going to go well for you. And they're, what are you looking for in a king? And they're like, give us someone big. And he's like, well, Saul's big. That's not a great criteria. Saul's tall. He's a warlord. He's back on the warfield, and we find that there's this standoff happening in the horseshoe-shaped valley of Allah in chapter 17, verse 4, because there's a, a, a hero, a champion, right? Then Goliath, verse 4, a Philistine champion from Gath came out from the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. It's a big dude. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. That's a heavy coat. (laughs) Some of you got 125. You're like, that's what I weigh, or you think that's what you weigh. 125 pounds, he's just wearing you and he's over nine feet tall. He also, verse 6, wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and as thick as a weaver's beam. You know, weaver's. He tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. So the spearhead, just the head of the spear, is 15 pounds, right? So, You go bowling sometimes. You don't own your own bowling ball, right? So you got to go find one. I always got to go look for the one with the big finger holes because I got a big finger, right? And it's usually around 9 or 10 pounds, right? The highest they go up to is 15. A bowling ball at the end. That's what this guy is using for target practice. Like, he's just slinging a spear around that weighs 15 pounds just at the end of it. He's just playing darts with this thing, right? That's how monstrous this guy is. It goes on, verse 7, "'His armor-bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites, "'Why are you all coming out to fight?' he called. "'I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul.'" Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Verse 16, for 40 days? 40 days of this? Every morning and evening, twice a day, for 40 days. That's that's 80 times. That's 80 taunts. The Philistine champion strutted, (laughs) circle, underline, highlight. I mean, can we just stop right there? It's one thing to be taunted. It's another entirely to have someone strut in front of you while they taunt you, right? I mean, this is obnoxious. This guy is Peacocking when he's taunting—it's offensive, distasteful, insufferable for forty days, twice a day. That's eighty times with that big booming giant voice. Send me a man. Your best one-on-one mano a mano. Winner takes all. And it says they are frozen. They gave no response. No, isn't that sad? You read that, you're like, no, I mean, just nothing. And I wonder how many of us do the same thing. I mean, we get so used to listening to the taunts of our enemies, of being so paralyzed by fear that that voice just sort of runs in the background now. I bet the 80th time Goliath yelled across that horseshoe-shaped valley didn't send shivers down their spines the way it did the first time. You just kind of get used to it. He's been screaming these bellowing taunts, these obnoxious, slanderous, sneering provocations and insults so loudly, so regularly that I bet two things happened. One, they became desensitized to it. No longer did it really affect them, right? It just kept them paralyzed. They just got used to it. The second, they started to believe it. Like, they're right. He's right. There's no way we can take that guy down. And the weapon that he uses, and you notice this here too, he, I mean, he mixes truth with fiction, which is really effective. He's a... He's right. He goes, I'm a big dude. I'm an undefeated heavyweight. I'm a war hero. I'm an uncontested champion. All true. And all these truths are subtly and gently slipped into a Goliath cocktail that he serves them. In verse 10, he goes, I'm going to defy the armies of Israel. And we go, that's not true. Right? So he's got like four parts truth to one part lie. I'm big. I'm undefeated. I'm a war hero. I'm going to defeat Israel, and you go, and then he shakes it up, and he serves it to them, and it has them frozen in fear. In modern language, gaslighting. That's what we call that. It's a popular term, a colloquialism, loosely defined as manipulating someone as to make them question their own reality. You tell them truth, 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 truth truth, then slide in a little lie, and suddenly they're so undermined in their own confidence that they don't do anything. They're frozen in fear. That's what Goliath's doing. I'm big. I'm undefeated. I'm a legend. I'm going to destroy God's people. And you go, truth, 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 false. But it works. It's effective for 40 days nothing. And what it takes in a scenario like that one for the spell to be broken is someone from outside to walk into the scene and go, wait, what's happening right now? Right? And that's kind of what we see happening in scripture. Meanwhile, at the Flying J Ranch of Jesse, Jesse is pacing those worn wooden planks on the front porch going, I wonder what's happening on the battlefront. There's been no news for 40 days. And this is a day and age, right, when battles don't take long. And for 40 days, there's been no news, no advancement, no update, no change. Things are just stuck. And we learn in verses 12 through 15 that Jesse is worried. He sent his boys off to war, all except, kind of, sort of, out there in the field, He don't even esteem David enough to send him to the war. So he sends the other ones, and he's got him back home. And he's like, okay, I need an update. I need to know what's going on. And the scriptures say that he packs some cheese and some bread together, and he's like, David, here are some sandwiches. Take them to your brothers. See if you can get an update. At the first sign of danger, drop the sandwiches and run. I've lost them. I don't want to lose you too. But, oh, David's not going to listen to his dad that day. He stumbles into the scene, and around the time he arrives, Goliath comes back out. I don't know if it's the morning taunt or the evening taunt, right, because there's two a day. I don't know which one he overhears, but he overhears one of them, and he's looking around, and he's like, wait, what? Like, this guy is just, how long has this been going on? He's just sort of taking it all in. And then he overhears something else. And this is what I'd never noticed before. Verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out, talking about Goliath? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Circle, underline, highlight, because David heard that. He goes, whoa, 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 "Whoa. Wait, wait, wait. What's the king going to do for the guy that defeats the Philistine?" David verse 26 asked the men standing near him. So he's heard it once. He's like, "Oh, hold on, hold on. Just want to hear that again. What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel?" And so the guys tell him again. So, I mean, this is kind of interesting to me. And and I and I don't want to make too big of a deal of this, right? But for, for 40 days, they've been frozen. For 40 days, King Saul has tried to up the ante. He wants Goliath removed. And he's unwilling to go up against them himself, which is a bit cowardly. Because remember, the thing that got him in this position was the fact that he was a war hero and the fact that he was a big dude. And now for 40 days, their big dude has been calling out your big dude. And your big dude goes, can someone fight him, please? Because I'm not gonna. No takers? All right. I'll throw in a thousand bucks. Nothing? 10,000. And then week two becomes week three, and he goes, how about 50,000 and one of my daughters? And then week three becomes week five, and he goes, how about 50,000, one of my daughters and tax-exempt status? And David walks onto the scene, in verse 26, he goes, wait, hold on. What do I get? I... I, I've never seen this before. And before you get kind of frustrated with me for pointing this out, look at Scripture. Because David says it over and over. He walks up, he hears Goliath, and the first word spoken by David in Scripture, pause. He's an important figure in the Bible. He's the only person whose name is mentioned, whose Jesus' name is mentioned more than. Let's say that correctly. He's he's got the number two mentions in the Bible. There's Jesus, and then there's David, and then the nearest third isn't that close at all. David is mentioned over and over and over in the scriptures. And the first words spoken by him are wait, ladies and money? (laughs) Ladies and money. Can I, okay, can we, can you confirm this? Uh, Ladies, did he say ladies and money? I love God. Ladies and money? Do I get, I mean, that's what we see. In fact, before you get upset, before you send the emails, remember my name is Jay at (laughs) midtownvineyardchurch.com. In verse 28, (laughs) it says, this is so obnoxious that his own brother tells him to pipe down. Never saw that. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and said, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Kind of a dig there. I love that. How conceited you are, and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. And like a typical little brother, David goes, What have I done? Can I even speak? He turned then away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him the same as before. Three times he gets them to say it Ladies and money? Ladies and money? Ladies and money? As this, as this teaching series go, we're going to see time and time again that the key issue going on in the heart of King David is this battle with his own ego. Battle with ladies and money. This is a foreshadowing, isn't it? Of the struggle that he's gonna, this is gonna dog him his entire kingship. When he finally makes it to the throne, this is what we're going to see. It's foreshadowed here. You have to wonder if this is at the dark heart of his struggle because of where he sits in the family line. Remember, he's the youngest of eight. In a day and age when everything is inheritance and birthright, you gotta wait out seven other boys. Who's gonna marry the eighth in the litter? And David's got to be wondering, maybe this is how I advance myself. What's in it for me? I'm looking for a way. Not to mention, he's not even noticed by his father. You think, I mean, when when the prophet gallops into town and makes the townsfolk tremble, when God tells the prophet one of the boys is going to be king, Jesse doesn't even bother to get David. You think he feels forgotten? unlovable, overlooked, unesteemed. I mean, maybe it's a lot of weight to place on one half of a verse, but I would submit to you that the God who had this written down had this included on purpose. The opening scenes of David in that Valley of Allah, in his first words in the Bible, what can I get? What can I get? What about God? What can I get? If you're looking for motives here, it seems that David's start at women and money. I love God, but women and money. It's as if the author wants us to know what it looks like for God to have the priority in our lives. David is a complicated man. He's not perfect. He comes with his stuff. He wants more material, more possessions, more stuff. And I think God understands that about him. He knows there's greed in us. He knows there's an ego and a pride that we're going to have to struggle with. And he sees that even now in King David. But David rolls up, and he identifies that stuff, and he's got to continually put his heart back into the place where he's like, okay, I know what I want, but God, my eyes are fixed on what you want instead. And whenever he can keep those priorities that way, he does well. For 38 chapters, I think we're going to see chapter 17 giving us everything we need to know about the head and the heart of King David. The heart of David is he cares about the things God cares about. The heart of David is he really wants to honor God. But in his head, he's going to have to battle his sexuality. He's going to have to battle his pride, his priorities, and his ego. And for David, whenever honoring God is put above all those things, he does well. God does amazing things through him. But whenever it gets twisted, he falls into sin. And it's as if the author of Scripture is telling us, don't get caught up in David. David's not the hero of this story. Right? He's a great example, but he's not the hero. He just knows the hero. If you're looking for a hero here, don't look at David. David's got some dark stuff he's got to deal with, some unhealthy motivations that he's going to forever have to walk out. David's not the hero in this story. God is, because God chooses to use a David who is able to set aside those things and go, okay, God, but bring me into alignment with you. And I know for many of us, that's a different take on David. I, I tried this out with a few of you this week over coffee and lunch. I'm going, I don't think David is the hero. And people were like, I murdered their best friend. you like, they just got so offended. They're like, what? And it's like, no, I think what we see is a really flawed leader. And as long as we look at David as being perfect, we'll never aspire to it. It's like, I can't do that. But when we see a complicated, broken guy who's just all the time going, okay, I got my dark stuff, but I'm, I don't have to be perfect. I just need to know the one who is. And boy, I surrender that. Guys, this was so liberating for me this week. I can't tell you how many times I'm going, God, I can't preach on this. I'm no David. I'm a Saul. Saul, Saul was a coward, he sat on the fence. Guys, there's no fence I can't find worth sitting. I, like, I can sit on a fence forever. Right? I've got more in common with Saul. I'm like, God, the people who know me best are going to know what a fraud I am. I'm going to go up there and talk about David. And it was like God was going, I'm not asking you to be David. Right? If the David that you have in mind is perfect... I'm asking you to bring your messed up stuff before me and let me do the work. And his first reaction to the news of Saul's offer in the story, money and ladies, money and ladies, I love God, money and ladies. This is the war we see going on in King David. It's the war we'll forever see going on with him. It's the one we'll have to fight, my own ego versus God's stuff. And what's been said of David has been overheard by the people, What? He's asking about, gets reported back to the king, and the king finds out someone's asking about the bounty. Verse 31, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Hey, you finally have someone asking about the payoff for this. And the king's like, who? because for 40 days I've been called out twice a day. Really anyone will do, right? And he brings up this little kid named David, right? And look at verse 32, what he says. He goes, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll fight him. And the confidence there. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy. He's like, David's probably 13, 14, 15, I mean, we don't really know. His voice might not have even changed yet. But David persisted. I had been taking care of my (laughs) father. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. Pause. What? Okay, so you've got King Saul going. There's no, you're only a boy. And David's like, oh yeah, I killed some animals when I was taking care of my father. It's like, David, I don't know if that should go on your resume, dog. Like that's... That's not that impressive. Oh, you've been taking care of sheep and goats? He goes, when a lion or bear, now, I mean, this is, this is kind of cool. When a lion or a bear come, came to steal a lamb from the flock, I would go after it with a club. I love this. David doesn't wait for the lion or the bear to get a lamb in its mouth first. When it even begins approaching the flock, he goes, I would go after it. I mean, that's so proactive. So many of us, we, inexcu- or, sorry, we excuse inactivity in our lives for fights that we're trying to ignore that God wants us to have. God wants us to show responsibility in certain areas. But we kind of go, well, it's not, you know, it's not really my thing or whatever. And David's like, not me. Man. <laughs> like, if I even saw the thing coming near, I went after if there are some things we need to be proactive about. David shows that as an example. David's not the hero, but David is an example. And I love when we get that right, th- some things snap into focus. That David is not the hero of the story, but he is an example. That's what we see here. He, suge- he starts volunteering for a fight. He's like, don't worry about this Philistine I'm going to go in there. And Saul goes, you can't go in there. And he's like, let me tell you something. When a lion or a bear, verse 34, would come to steal a lamb from the flock, I would go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Like, wait, what? Because at first this sounded kind of silly. You're like, David, that's not a great resume. And then you're like, wait, hold on you what? He's like, yeah, not a big deal, right? Uh, when, when, whenever an animal would come get my animal, I would go get it. I would, I would get the thing out of its mouth, which you're like, wait, what? And he's like, and then since I have my hand there already, I just hold its jaw, I pick up my club, and I club it to death. Like, what? I mean, can we just respect David's gangster real quick? This... <laughs> that's a You're like, what in the world? And he goes, I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And there we see the shift, don't we? I've done, the Lord, verse 37, who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Notice in David's response, there's a shift that occurs in who receives the glory, who receives the credit, who receives the honor. The Lord rescued me. I love the fact. He gives the honor and the glory to God. As we've already said, David is going to struggle his whole life long with his own desires, his own pursuits, his own passions, his ego, his drive, his reputation, his heart. And God knows he's going to struggle with these things. And whenever he learns to surrender these things to God, to allow God to come before these things, whenever he gives the priority to God in his life over and above all these things, he does well. And here he shows that he acknowledges his past wins, his past victories are not his at all. They're God's. And that's a beautiful shift. I think it's so important. Because as long as we see our past victories as ours, then we have to do it again. And that's a lot of pressure. But when we view them as the Lord's, the Lord's faithfulness, doesn't that sort of take that pressure off? And you go, boy, he's done it before and he will do it again. It's what we just sang about a minute ago. I believe I'll see you do it again. Guys, that is a principle all throughout Scripture, is remembering God's past faithfulness. Why? Because the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So the best predictor of future faithfulness is past faithfulness. And God has been faithful to you, hasn't he? I mean, You're here now. You could be anywhere. I don't know what, I mean, I, so many of you, I don't know your story, I don't know what tracks led you here, but you're here. You could be dead. And he's gotten you this far. I mean, isn't that saying something? At the bare minimum, one of the most repeated commands in all of Scripture is the command to remember. And I know this not because I read somebody else's word study, I did the word study. The command to remember is repeated more often than most commands we usually associate with Christianity. Commands like forgive, which is in there a lot. Commands like pray, which is in there a lot. That's a big one. The command to remember appears even more than that. Why? Because if we don't remember, we forget. If we don't consciously go, okay, all of those things, God, you've done for me in my rear view, I mean, that's what David is doing here. He goes, man, he delivered me from a lion. He delivered me from a bear. What troubles a giant, right? The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. He can see what God has done in his rear view. And so that gives him courage for the future. I was reading about Caleb this morning. Am I quiet? Do you guys remember Caleb? Him and Joshua were like among the spies who were sent to spy out the promised land there's 12 of them if i'm not mistaken and they get there and 10 of them all go there's so many giants there we can't take them down and joshua and caleb are going are you kidding me like we can you guys remember that red sea that we just had remember we were leaving egypt and there were soldiers chasing us with chariots. And we're a bunch of ex-slaves, ex-brickmakers. And we're dead-ended into the Red Sea. And there was nowhere to go. And then remember that whole, like Moses stuck up the stick and the seas parted. And then we walked through on dry ground. And then after we got across, God let the seas come back together just in time for those soldiers to be swallowed. God defeated an army with a stick? What trouble are giants? Guys, those giants on your horizon are nothing compared to the armies in your rear view. And David knows this, and so he reflects back. He goes, okay, the Lord gave me the victory over a bear and a lion And he's going to do it again with this giant. And so I love verse 37. Saul finally consents. This is so funny. He's like, all right, just go ahead. (laughs) May the Lord be with you. I mean, just God bless you, man. This is not going to take long. (laughs) Right, and then... I mean, David, uh, he's got to get suited up for battle. So Saul gives David his own armor, verse 38, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. David puts it on, straps his sword over it, takes a step or two to see what it's like, for he had never worn such things. And finally he says, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So he takes them off again. I love that David here understands in a moment what has taken some of us lifetimes to learn. In one moment he understands that God called him to be David not Saul I've spent untold seasons of my life trying to wear Saul's armor and you have too trying to be someone you're not when God's just called you to be yourself you don't have to be you don't have to wear somebody else's armor In verse 40, it says, he picks up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Circle, underline, highlight. What kind of bag? This is David embracing who he is. I'm not called to be Saul. I'm called to be David. He puts him in his shepherd's bag. Then armed only with his shepherd's staff and a sling, he starts across the valley to fight the Philistine. I mean, could you imagine being the Israelites that day? You've heard rumors that, oh, there's going to be a fight. Someone's going to finally take down the giant, right? And then you're like, you go out to the battlefront for the morning taunt, you know, because Goliath's coming. You go, you show up, and they're like, what's happening? And you're like, nothing. Someone's kid got loose, but otherwise, nothing, you know. And then you're like, oh, no, that's the guy. Like that's, He's going to fight the giant, right? And he's, a, he's got five, I don't know why Five. There's some commentators who say, based on other passages of Scripture, that Goliath might have had four giant brothers. True story. Like you can look that up. And so when David is getting the five stones, maybe he's getting one for each of them in case he takes Goliath down and gets chased after by four others. He's like, I got one for, for all of you. I don't, I don't think so. I think David picked up five stones because he knew that's about how many you could get off before you got struck in the head with a bowling ball. If you're going out to fight a giant you better have a full clip don't just put one in the chamber that's a dumb move but imagine being Goliath I waited a month and a half and this is the best you got you're sending out a little kid that's what his reaction is verse 41 David uh, Goliath walked out towards David with his shield bearer ahead of him sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy am I a dog He roared at David that you come at me with a stick. And he cursed David by the name of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. And listen to David's reply. You come to me with, I'm just kidding. You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of the heavens armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have to fight. Today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head. Mm. (laughs) this isn't the youth version that we heard in Sunday school. Because the one I heard growing up, he got hit in the forehead and the story's over, you know. But in this version, he cuts off his head. Like it's, it's, I love that he says though that the Lord will conquer you and I'm going to kill you. The Lord already has the victory. I still got to walk it out. So three examples that David sets before us quickly as we're running out of time. It's a great story, and it's so much to try to fit in. When we look at David as a hero, I mean, the story just becomes the story of a hero, and we're not heroes, so we just kind of go, well, that's nice. When we look at God as the hero and David as the example, there's some things that snap into focus for us, I think. And just three quick examples that David sets before us. One, because of his hero, David sees himself winning before he does. Because of his hero. Not because he's heroic, but because he knows who the hero is, David can see himself winning even before. Verse 32, he goes, don't worry about this Philistine. I'll fight him. Guys, I think that's the heart that David has that is an example to us. Things we can aspire to. I know who's on the throne, and so I can see myself winning this even before I've entered the battle. When you've surrendered your heart to God in that way and you realize that he's the hero, he's the hero, you go, okay, there's some fights I'm going to start signing up for because I can see myself winning this one. Not because I'm great, but because he is. And that empowers us to start fighting some fights we've been putting off. Because there's some we've been delaying, isn't there? There's some we've been dodging, things we haven't wanted to deal with, financial stuff we've been ignoring or avoiding, trouble in our marriages that we've just kind of been hoping would go away on its own, right? An unhealthy relationship that you know you need to surrender and you don't want to. There's an issue with your children you hope no one else notices. That addiction, that health thing, all those battles that we're called to fight that we keep putting off. When we know who's on the throne, you don't have to be the hero. You just got to know the hero and have the faith to walk it out. And because of his hero, David goes, okay, I can see myself winning this one. He has the faith to walk that out. He becomes an example. Not our hero, but our example. Two, because of his hero, David's type of problem becomes irrelevant. (laughs) I don't want to say that again. Because of his hero, David's type of problem becomes irrelevant. Right? For David, the type of problem doesn't really matter anymore. In his rear view, he sees lions and bears. So what troubles a giant? Right? It's the same problem, just a different name. The old problems. there was a giant, I'm sorry, a lion and a bear back there. Up here, it's a giant. It's all the same things. I've seen God do it to the lions and the bears. So what difference is a giant? I got lion, check, bear, check, giant. All right, we're about to see what it looks like to take one down. The type of problem doesn't matter anymore. He's not special. He's not different. He looks back and he sees based on God's past faithfulness, this new problem is going to not be a problem for very long based on God's future faithfulness (laughs) you want to know something cool and maybe you already knew this I I did not but I googled this week I was so curious about this because lions and bears you're like okay you know how long or how tall is a lion right if it went all thriller on you you know what I mean like if you were to get out a tape measure it's about nine feet And then I went, oh, that's interesting. Hey Siri, how tall is a bear if it goes all thriller on you? Nine feet. How tall's a Goliath? Nine feet. David goes, I've seen the stuff you've done before in my rear view, God. This is no new problem. It's just got a different name. It's the same problem. Because it doesn't matter. When God is your hero, He's like, man, they're all the same to me. God doesn't have big problems and little problems; they're all the same size. That situation you're facing now, the God of your salvation can defeat it. That's what He does, and He's the hero. Point three: because of His hero, David knows who has to conquer and who has to kill. That's so important. Because he says to Goliath, I love the trash talk, he says to Goliath, he goes, the Lord has conquered you, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? Guys, who conquered death? Who conquered hell? Who conquered the grave? Who rose with power in his hand after conquering these things? Jesus. And now based on that, who has to kill some generational curses? Who's got to walk in victory and blessing and integrity as we kill addictions and sin and drama and bad habits and self-destructions? We do. He's conquered it. We have to kill it. And as As David finds out, with with God as the hero of this story, that's what gives him confidence to go up against Goliath. With a slingshot. We don't read of David. I know that we all like to associate David with the slingshot. We've never read before in Scripture that he used a slingshot. We never read of him again in Scripture using a slingshot. He uses it in this one thing, right? And he takes down a giant with it. And David's confidence is based on two things. He's confident in his God. He knows who the hero is. And he's confident that God can use his skill set. So he empties himself to God. That's his heart. He shows up to this battle and he goes, Do it, God. You conquer him. You can use me. You can have me. This is how the story ends. He empties his heart. His messed up, complicated, broken heart because as long as we see ourselves having to be the hero we count ourselves out but when we see god as the hero and david is the guy who rolls up on the scene and goes money and ladies money and ladies i love god money and ladies when we see him that way it's like god can, he goes i can use that i can use that that's all i need And we see a shift happen for David in this story right here. With David's glory versus God's glory. Whose glory am I going to live for? I love Psalm 8. That's how we started this message. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Not David's name. Not your name. His name. He's the hero. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, who am I that you are mindful of me? Who am I that you care for me? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's bow our heads for a moment. This story looks a little bit different when we remove David from the hero spot and put God there where he belongs. We see in David an example of what a life looks like when God is the hero, when it's God's glory, when it's God's battle, and when we are God's beloved. As long as we see David as the hero, we count ourselves out. But when we see David as a complicated, fallen, broken dude who has to contend with the heart that he's always trying to get back into the right place, we go, well, maybe me too. So a couple questions this morning. Have you counted yourself out? Have you given up on you? Because you've been trying to be a hero? The good news is you can't be. And if you think that disqualifies you, congratulations, you qualify you got to be broken. Have you been looking at the wrong hero? Have you been looking at your past victories or accomplishments as yours instead of his? Maybe for some of you, there's been some fights you've been running from. Or you've been frozen in fear because you just don't think you have what it takes. Do you believe that God can rearrange your heart the way he did David's? Do you believe that God can use your heart when it's surrendered to him? That he can rearrange your priorities, your weaknesses, and still lead and direct your life? Are you brave enough to own your flaws? The solution in this story is not David. It's David's weakness in the hands of a living God. As the story ends, and you know how it goes David throws a rock at Goliath, he falls, and he runs up and gets a bit gruesome. God gets the win. God gets the victory. God, we want to live for your glory so that you get the victory. So in this moment, friends, we like to give a minute or two just to listen. To listen to whatever the Lord might be saying to you in this time. so the band is going to play then after a minute or two we're going to join our voices together again in a song someone will pray over you and at that amen you are dismissed you are free to go we've enjoyed worshipping with you we'd love to see you back next week but in the space between here and there just allow the Lord to search you This week is gonna be so loud and so noisy. As soon as we leave here, it's gonna fire back up. Some of you might be walking through some things that you need to surrender. There's some kneelers up here if you'd like to place movement with what you're wrestling with. Nothing special about the kneelers, just sometimes movement gives us a way to track what God's saying. To my left, there's a table with communion on it. To my right, there's some prayer candles if you'd like to light one as you pray. Again, take whatever time you need before it gets away from us. Then we'll sing. Then we'll pray. Then we'll head out. Spirit, search our hearts. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information on who we are, check out our website, midtownvineyardchurch.com. We'd love to hear from you. Make sure you leave us a review or drop us a comment. Until next time, have a great day.